Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello everybody and uh, welcome back to Coffee and Geography after our long, what seems a very, very long hiatus. It's season three and we have our first guest of the season, uh, Dan Hall. Hello Dan, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great thanks, how are you? I'm doing very, very well. I quite enjoyed the cold snap we, we had. And folks who listen, because I know we've got folks who listen all over the world, at least I like think so. You know, we got down to my mom, got down to like minus seven at one point. That's cold for here. But uh, mm, how have you right. found that? How did you find it? Yeah, similar. It's kind of, um, well, it was very cold, very cold in the house. Um, but it was sort of nice to feel kind of genuinely wintry in December which we don't mm. seem to get that much. Um, no. And now it's sort of reverted to type and gone grey and rainy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is more, a bit more classic. Um, and uh, I think it goes about saying that we we both give our um, our thoughts and our consideration to those folks who are really struggling at this time of year with the very, you know, the excessive high energy bills and, and you know, whatever it is. It's, it's not just keeping the house warm, it's to keep themselves warm. It's also keeping their mm. homes warm enough to stave off things like mould and, you know, good living conditions. So, you know, it's, um, yeah. so our thoughts go out to all you folks who are finding this a bit of a struggle right now. And I think you've probably relieved that we're now in double figures again for a little bit. Yeah. I think it's really brought, brought it into focus for everyone that experience of actually kind of monitoring how much you're spending on, on energy when you, uh, you know, a, a lot of people would be fortunate enough to not really consider that too much putting on the heating when it gets a bit cold. Um, but there's probably very few people in the country who didn't have at least half an eye on it now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope we can all move forward, you know, take take uh, some positive learning from this going forward and uh, and benefits everybody in the long run. Um, right. So let's get introducing to you before we go off on a complete geographer's tangent without introducing mm-hmm. you. <laughs> so Dan is someone who uh, never considered he would be describing himself as a proud geography nerd, but spends most of his time telling anyone who listened about the virtues of geography. So we're very similar there. Uh, he did his uh, undergraduate degree at geography at the University of Oxford before a master's in environment, politics and society at UCL, which is University College London. Uh, he went back to Oxford School of Geography and the Environment as their first access and outreach officer with the remit of encouraging as many young people as possible to consider both at Oxford and in general. Huge football fan who also changes passion for the beautiful game and environmentalism into voluntary work for the non-profit Football for Future. And we'll definitely have a little chat about that since the uh, the World Cup has just ended. So we will, um, as we're recording, so we'll definitely talk football a little bit later, Dan. <laughs> Look forward to it. Right. So I know see you drinking your drink. So what have you, what brew have you got in front of you today? I've got a good old fashioned uh, tea, uh, PG tips, fully caffeinated, yep. <laughs> uh, no coffee for me today. It's a, uh, it's just a, I'm kind of coffee first thing in the morning, tea through the rest of the day, really. Um, soy milk and one sugar. Oh yeah. I, I do. I do oat milk, no sugar, oat milk. I see you got your Marvel Spider-Man mug. I have. Yeah. It's one of, one of my favorites. It's, I think it's, um, I, don't, I can't remember where I got it. I've had it absolutely years, but it's the first, I think it's maybe the first, the comic book cover of like the first uh, edition that featured Spider-Man or something, the kind of retro comic book cover. I think it's quite, quite a nice design. 
Okay, question for you then. Mm-hmm. So, classic comic Spider-Man, the, the first Spider-Man movies, the amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man movies, or the recent Spider-Man movies, what would you pick? Oh, it's a, it's a great question because uh, Marvel stuff is also something I'm, I'm a pretty big nerd about. Um, <laughs> ah, God, the, the, the Sam Raimi movies with Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, uh, I think that sort of kind of set the bar and, and mm. a very sort of nostalgic. Um, and I think the, the Andrew Garfield ones were bad, but not because of him. Mm. Um, and... I really like Tom Holland and I really like that version of the character as well. But probably as a standalone thing, I'd probably go with the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man yeah. films. Yeah. And I, I, I really enjoyed, um, so no way home when mm. they all got together, which was pretty yeah. awesome. No spoilers. Yeah. It's, it's not a spoil everybody. It's like comes out on all the trailers and everything like that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's pretty cool because of course, if, if you're a, a fan of the comics or the cartoons you know that there are very many versions of spider-man anyway mm. so it was the it was the marvel com- uh, universe uh, m- movie universe who tried to get them all together so they did it pretty well it was pretty clear yeah it was good I, I, when i first heard about it i was a bit worried but i, I think it, i think it was, it turned it was out very well. very well done in the end yeah yeah right before we, we could talk about marvel i mean i've cosplayed as black widow so yeah. really, <laughs> so, yeah, we we could we could um we could talk about this all day, um. But you're you're in Oxford, so as you mentioned, so you live in the middle of Oxford, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So um, oh, so my my experience of Oxford actually first came through the fictional novels by Philip Pullman, right? Um, yeah. Liar is Oxford. Oxford. That's right. Um, and that I did that before I visited Oxford for the first time. So I've been to Oxford a couple of times now. But um, for those folks who have heard about Oxford, romanticised about Oxford, um, what would you say? What would you describe Oxford as being like? As uh, from a person who lives there, works there, and maybe from a geographer's point of view? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, well, so as context, I lived and uh, I was sort of born, grew up in um, in Wolverhampton, which. Uh, you can't really tell from my accent now. I've sort of lived down <laughs> south enough to, to have the kind of the yam yam taken out of me. But um, <laughs> Wolverhampton's a very different place. Um, and I, I love it. I still go home a lot, um, a lot of the time for football reasons. Um, but it was certainly different moving to somewhere like Oxford for, for university. I'd say that the there's some stuff that is absolutely kind of true about it in terms of comparing like the, the imagination of it to the real place. In terms of the... The buildings, the kind of beauty of the, of the of the buildings, and it feels like nearly every building in central Oxford would be if it, if there was only one of them, it would be like a world tourist attraction anywhere else. But every building's like that here, um, or a lot of them anyway. And you kind of get that sense that this, the place is sort of full of history. Um, but also, I find it quite funny the kind of contrast between these sort of old kind of cathedrals of history um, compared to the very sort of modern things that are now next to them so just as, a, as an example on the on the high street um there's a big building called the examination schools where typically students go to have their final uh, exams dressed at the gowns and everything and um and it's this sort of big beautiful ornate building that um when you are walking towards it to do exams is, is kind of a little bit intimidating um but most nights of the week when you go past it past a certain time in the evening there's just this kind of very quintessential english town kebab van outside it 
And it's just like that, that I just, that one kind of shot of like the kebab van in front of this really ornate building always kind of makes me chuckle a bit, just as a sort of contrast and the kind of old and the new of Oxford. But I mean, as a city as a whole, I think it's really, it has a real vibrance and energy about it because you have University of Oxford, you have Oxford Brooks. So the term time population is, is massive. It's full of young mm. people. There's a lot of young professionals as well. The university employs a load of people. So yeah, I love it. I think it's really, really fun place to live. Um, both when I was a student and and now working as well. Mm. I have, uh, I sent, I think at least sent two students to Oxford. I think, well, I didn't send them. They went themselves, obviously, but they went on mm-hmm. to do geography. So, uh, so yeah, that's, um, that's pretty good. And one went and did history. Bah. <laughs> can't, can't we can't win them all. I bet, yeah, but something you said about the kebab, there's something quintessentially British, or at least English, by having a kebab. <laughs> a kebab van or a kebab store right next to some whole historic building i mean there's you go you go to norwich near where i live and uh, the main haunt for all of the nightclubs and stuff like that and you literally have like norwich cathedral norwich castle and then just a couple of steps away the kebab shops mm. it's just uh, mm. yeah something very quintessentially english about all of that it's, it's still got comforting about it i think you know yeah. um that there's that sort of constant wherever i mean oxford has quite a good selection of, of kebab vans actually there's maybe <laughs> like four or five maybe a couple more that i don't know about like all in a fairly short uh radius and they kind of pitch themselves at tactical points of like the walks home of students from nightclubs to to their colleges um and like um yeah yeah i think it just it does it has a pretty good selection for the size of the city mm. That's that's really interesting to me. Is that I I think that the the mobile food vans are something which is I think relatively new over here in the UK because when I when I used to live in the United States there used to be mobile food vans all over the place that would turn up particularly in college towns and stuff like that you know as we say as the students were coming out now I seem to see more and more of them around yeah I mean. I don't know when I was a student, well, you was a student. I don't remember there being like mobile food vans, but now they seem to be all over the place. Yeah, I think they were kind of like in a sort of, um, as with a lot of things, tied up in the sort of council bureaucracy of English towns in that they they're kind of vans, but they're semi permanent, so they have to have a license to be in those certain spots, right? So mm. um, the um, there's one that's kind of always pictures at the same spot on like the one of the biggest streets that lead to this kind of walk home from a couple of different clubs to a couple of different uh colleges where, where the students live and um, that has a bit of a good reputation um so it's this yeah i think they have to have permits to be there and it's yeah. kind of shared with other stuff in the daytime as well mm. and of course folks i know some people may be screaming at the podcast going what about ice cream vans kit they've been around for donkey's <laughs> years and i'm like no that's not the same thing folks they're not like <laughs> you know they don't do the ratchet to put their steel peg down and like camp mm-hmm. there for half a day, you know, they're gone. In fact, by the time you found your, as my kids have experienced, by the time you found your money and ran out, it's off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, not the same thing folks. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to go, uh, straight into, um, spilling the beans now. Uh, cause I want you to talk about, um, and I know we kind of like touched a bit of it on Marvel because it's kind of sort of the same elk, but it's about sci-fi because mm-hmm. um, you are a big sci-fi nut. And you say mm-hmm. here that you actually um, love particularly like sci-fi stuff, which uh, contains like theoretical physics and things like that. So yeah, you've been reading pretty- something by Carlo Rivelli? 
Yeah, it sounds really pretentious, but I just kind of like to, I like it when the stuff that really is like the really mind bending things. And uh, so one, um, uh, one thing, for example, is like the, with black holes and you get the kind of gravitational dilation stuff where it's like, you know, if, you, yeah. if you're close, if you're close to a black hole, time goes is it faster or slower, slower, I think. Slower, yeah. Um, and like, so I think there's been interesting stories told in different sci-fi stories about like, you know, you kind of have one end of a space station or a ship or something closer to it and time goes slower there compared to the other one. Um, so that kind of thing I, I find quite cool. And it, and it sort of, um, I guess it kind of links to, to the geographer in me in the sense that, um, there's, um, there's a kind of quite fairly new field of outer space geography. So I say fairly fairly new it's fairly uh, under researched anyway but there's one really great article um by an academic called uh, julie klinger uh, t- talking about sort of the geography uh, of of outer space um, and the fact that you know outer space does have this geography to it because it has sort of gravity wells and black holes that do things to, to the relationships between between space and time oh that is amazing i'm gonna have to look that up mm, geography of space Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with it. I've been um, giving giving him yet another shout out. I've been a regular uh, guest on uh, Andy Plasty's podcast called The Great Derelict, which is all about sci-fi. And so some oh, of wow. you would enjoy mm. it. And in fact, I, I would I would argue probably tap Andy up to be a guest on that because um, we, and we actually have done like, you know, geography in, in Star Trek, for example, colonialism mm-hmm. in Star Trek and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but I want to go back to black holes because I, I love this kind of stuff. I'm the kind of person who will watch like copious amounts of YouTube videos or, yeah. you know, yeah. read Wikipedia articles about all this stuff. Um, in terms of sci-fi, there's, there's two, there's two, which, um, in particular, uh, of my favorite sci-fi ever, which I really love. So the first one is interstellar. Mm. Surely you've seen interstellar. I I actually haven't. So it's you been one of those <gasps> one of those films that for ages I've been like, well, I know I, I like it. I just need to get around to watching it, and just it hasn't whether <sighs> it hasn't been on any of the streaming things that I have, or or I've just not. I just keep forgetting oh to get around to it. But, yeah. right. Well, in that case, I'm going to have to do this in a spoiler-free manner. Um, <laughs> so um, there, I mean, the the plot itself is not the the synopsis is not a spoiler itself. It's humanity's dying, mm-hmm. you know, climate change, everything like that. And they, they go out into the stars in order to see if they can find alternative places for resources or for habitation, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they send out scouts to visit these various planets because they come across this portal, which allows it takes them into different systems. And they come across this one planet, which is near a black hole mm-hmm. called Miller's planet. And it is brilliant because they talk about how, because this is um, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. So, it's going to be as scientifically factual as they possibly can make it. Mm-hmm. And when, when the ship arrives um, outside the time dilation effects of black hole, they start having this debate. It's like, well, who's going to go down? You do know that every second we go down there is going to be the equivalent of blah, 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 you know, so many days back here on the ship and all that kind of stuff. And it's absolutely amazing. And they, they've got to get in and get out as quick as they can. Otherwise they're going to be gone years. Um, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That sounds I, great. I will have to watch it because I, yeah, yeah. I think, I knew I was aware that there was this sort of time space dilation stuff in it, but I've just never, never seen it. It's just, um, it's interesting with the, the, with the plot of a lot of sort of near future sci-fi It's always very pessimistic. It's always like, 
you know, climate change has ruined the earth. We, we've yes. done some terrible, like, I don't know whether it's just because something bad happening makes for a more interesting story in the future, because if it was like, we solved climate change and we carried on as normal, then what's your sort of narrative basis for, for starting mm. your story? But um, I remember reading something about this and I can't, I can't remember what it was for something I was doing in, uh, in my studies, but um, about how that's kind of not always been the case. And actually, I think in the sort of 60s and 70s, a lot of sci-fi was a lot more utopian, a lot more uh, optimistic, being like, you know, we're going to space and this is going to sort of, sort of solve all our problems and we'll be, we'll be happy. Yeah. Whereas a sort of modern disillusionment, we're, we're quite, every, every, every story set in the future seems to be predicated on, on us having a disaster around about now. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess the 50s and 60s were kind of the age of optimism. And mm. I guess into the seventies, you know, after after the Second World War, and then and then the Cold War took place. It was then the narrative seemed to change. You know, it was all about competition and getting one up over your opponents and whatnot. And yeah, of course, since we've now seen the effects of environmental degradation and climate change, it's been very much that's been the narrative. And and um, one thing that's really interesting about Interstellar, and this was also discussed recently on Andy's podcast, was how it is it will be seen as one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time, but if we watch it back in 25 years, maybe for a 25, 25th anniversary, it might not do so well because it might be cutting really close to the bone mm. Um, mm. because we are not in any way of really solving climate change into in a way which will protect the most vulnerable. Yeah. So um, you can definitely see, because it opens up with the fact that, you know, crops are dying and this kind of stuff and they're, you know, and a lot of most of humanity, this is not a spoiler, everybody, because you can't send the whole of seven, eight billion people into space. So um, not everyone makes it off of Earth. <laughs> so um, it is quite depressing, but I would say stupidly and depressingly realistic. <laughs> and a lot of those um, those sci-fi tropes about it kind of being inevitable that we're going to have a disaster and need to go yes. to outer space, um, those are what, people like Elon Musk used to justify um, oh, well the, done. their yep. kind of going to space. Um, SpaceX uh, making life multiplanetary, going to Mars and stuff. And this actually, I did some of my master's dissertations on this um, about the um, the kind of justification of using, talking about the environment as, as a reason for this sort of space billionaires to, to want to go to our space. Yeah. Oh, that is, yeah. Because I was actually talking to this to my kids, especially mm-hmm. my eight-year-old. And I was saying, yeah, like, like a lot of these rich people's solutions is to say, oh, well, let's just go terraform Mars, mm-hmm. you know, or or have a moon base. Mm-hmm. And I and and like I took, I took my eldest through the reasoning. I was like, okay, can everybody today afford to go on a flight? You know, so okay, go back a few hundred, you know, a hundred years or something. Could everybody afford to go on a on a ship to another country? Mm. you know go back so can everybody afford it a horse in order to get mm. further rather than walk and it's the same sort of thing it's always going to be the elite and the privileged who are able to access these first they mm. will set the agenda because they get to access it all first they get to set the ground rules they get to pioneer they get to you know there's there's going to be freaking like mcdonald's crater or a starbucks you know mountain yeah. or something yeah. like you know whatever but still it's um it's the a movie that does that exceptionally well, which is a fantastic environmental movie as well. Is a kids' movie, and that's Wally. Mm, who, yeah, I think 
does that amazingly well talks about how you know the the elite and the capitalist and the and the um the consumerism is what destroys earth and i think it's a hidden message in the movie it doesn't make it explicit at all but all those people who are up in space in the axiom in the ship very few ethnic minorities on that ship mm. if you have a, if you watch that movie back again right yeah and i think that was deliberate not mm, not not to be racist yeah. but because it's like these are the individuals who had had the privilege to escape a dying earth mm. um mm. i don't think that gets talked about enough yeah that is interesting and um i wonder whether a movie like that because you know obviously it's made uh it was pixar wasn't it it was was a disney pixar, one yeah. so um and it's like well how sort of how much of that message of anti-consumerism can can a disney movie be but also you can think of it from the other direction like how much can the directors and writers get away with so yeah. maybe the maybe the messages have to be a bit more subtle yeah so it's and it's brilliant I, I mean that's one of my favorite movies of all time even my electric car is called well it's called eva because of the way of wally pronounces it mm-hmm. but um, yeah. um it's a fantastic movie um so okay so we've we've geeked out there about about something <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, one thing I would like to uh, talk to you now a bit about is um, the football. Mm-hmm. So, um, because as you say here, you've uh, you're a football nut. You've you support Wolves. Uh, bearing mm-hmm. in mind where you're from, I love it. Love it. You're someone who supports the team where they're from. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you're not a Man United supporter from Wolves, and I you know, I'm, know. I'm I'm a Tottenham Hotspur supporter, and. People say, well, how comes that kit? You're living in Norwich. Well, I used to live in that part of the world. So, you know. Mm. Yeah, so I'll let, we'll let you off then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I know I'm not a glory hunter because I'm a top, well, <laughs> no top and top sport, sport is a glory hunter. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And you've, but you've, what you've put here, which I think is amazing. And I'd like to talk to you a bit more about it as well is um, you're into um, some nonprofit work with the charity um, football for future or for mm. non-profit football for future mm-hmm. so yeah this sounds absolutely brilliant um and i always am a believer that sport can be a, a thing that can change things for good so tell us a little bit about it tell us a little bit about football for future and and, and uh what you do and how you're involved with it yeah so football for future um i actually first heard of them uh, it was a it's a, a special episode that the guardian football weekly uh podcast did um on the relationship between football and climate change um and um, there's a football historian called David Goldblatt, um, and who was involved in starting Football for Future and was the was the chair, the first chair. Um, and he um, mentioned Football for Future on uh, on the podcast, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds really cool." Uh, so I looked them up, uh, and at that time, it's just a couple of the the guys who started it up. They were kind of just getting going, uh, and so I emailed them, um, and basically have ended up doing sort of a bit of social media and blog writing for them. Essentially, Football for Future is trying to build a more sustainable culture in the beautiful game through um, getting at the problem in, uh, from a couple of different angles. Um, so we write blogs and social media posts and share kind of good news stories from uh, around uh, around the sport um, and kind of talk about what we think are good sustainable changes that can be made in the game. Um, Some. And, and that's always with the mindset of we're communicating with football fans as football fans, um, talking through the language of football. Um, 
Football Future always uh, also does uh, work with professional clubs um, and uh, organisations such as uh, such as Nike. So they've, um, some of the guys run workshops with with Nike and Chelsea and uh, and your club Tottenham, um, delivering workshops for through their foundations uh, and also did some stuff with uh, Chelsea Academy recently as well. Mm. Um, and then uh, there's also the kind of more um, so that's kind of more on the educational side. Then there's a sort of more, um, uh, I guess, business advice side of things. So actually helping football clubs um, operationalize changes um, that are relevant to the football industry in terms of making them a more sustainable business. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah, um, we also have like sort of player champions or current professionals who want to speak up about climate change and um, aim to support them giving them the confidence and resources that they're able to talk about it effectively. Mm. So I'm quite, quite a small part in that. I just, uh, you know, write a few blog posts and social media posts among well, some other random things. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. So I'm looking at the, the blog entries there. So you've done, you've uh, talked about um, University of Oxford, who is responsible for English football sustainable transition. So that was a panel discussion you were involved with mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. supporting footballers to rise to the awareness of climate change, the Dixon foundation, so talking about what they do. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is, it's not as sustainable as I'd like it to be, but it's one of the mm -hmm. more sustainable stadiums in the country. Yeah. Um, but of course, the number one stadium, if you want to call it that, ground, because it's not as big as a stadium, but the number one, of course, is going to be Forest Green Rovers. Yeah. Um, so what are they in league? Are they league one now, I think? They are, yes, they're League One. I think they got promoted last season, yeah. Yeah. I want to see that. That would be all. I mean, could you imagine Forest Green Rovers in the Premiership? Like, Pete, you got, and you got all these like hardcore fans, Premier League fans, going to have, get some of their vegan pies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because, so on the, the podcast episode that I originally mentioned, the Guardian Football Weekly one, um, one of the other guests they, they had on it was Dale Vince, um, okay. who is. The, uh, is the chairman of, of, of Forest Green Rovers. Um, yep, and and, and City. Yeah, yeah. And um, I found it really interesting the way he kind of phrased some of the stuff around this, around the food choices in the stadium because it was it was really obvious in hindsight, but I'd ne I just never heard anyone set it out like that before. So he talks about the fact that they're offering all vegan food uh, in their stadiums and he explained it like, well, if you've ever been to a football match, you'll know that the food... It's terrible. It's like overpriced soggy burgers and hot dogs and like five chips with a slice of American cheese. Like, <laughs> rubbish. Um, so would you rather have that or a hummus and falafel wrap for like the same price? That's like fresher and tastier. Um, and like you can still get pies. They're just vegan ones. Um, and I just th I thought it was just it was just a very sort of matter of fact and accurate way of describing it. Like, like the food of football matches is bad the vegan alternatives is not sacrifice it's it's actually better and it's yeah. like well you know if, if and if you don't if you don't want it plenty of people go to matches without buying the food they just bring your own food or eat before you go to the match totally 100 there's a really good way of making a sustainable change without people feeling like you're they're having it kind of uh rammed down their throat um mm. which or literally in the sense of <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean we we the attitude we have at this household is that we 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 are baseline vegan which means you know by default we have vegan stuff um but we're vegetarian as well you know we don't mind eating 
dairy products stuff like that but we always consider where it's sourced from and then mm. in terms of in terms of meat we have white meat once in a blue moon and we are zero waste so say if we were to see a um the butcher was discounting something because you know it was going to go off or the supermarket was discounting stuff because it was going to go off or something then then would get it or we go to a party and the only thing left are those tatty sausage rolls mm. and it's like they're just going to be thrown in the bin no there is a bin right here. I will digest yeah. it. So I, I still don't know if there's a term for that because I know there's terms like flescatarian, mm-hmm. pescatarian, all that kind of stuff. But I don't I know, carbon tearing? Yeah. Low car- just low carbon diet, I guess. That's just... Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty similar. So I'm not... Uh, I've gone through phases of being kind of vegetarian. I've done... Uh, I did veganuary once or, or maybe twice and I found that really hard because mm. the difference between the kind of admin difference between vegetarianism and veganism. So in the sense that so much of what you just assume is fine actually ha- will have like egg white in as a binder or something. So you're constantly yeah. checking labels, um, yeah. which I find really annoying. Um, but vegetarianism, being veggie, you know, I don't find too difficult. But what I do, I don't buy meat to cook at home. Um and you know I cook a lot, so that's that's kind of fine. But I don't sort of deprive myself of it if I if I'm out and the veggie yeah. option's bad, or there's something that I really want, I'll kind of allow myself yeah. that as a as occasion. So I guess that's flexitarian. Yeah, and I, I don't think you know it's we're not you know people like ourselves who obviously we want all to get on the bandwagon with with kind of stuff that no one is. I'm not really saying give up meat totally or something like that. You know, mm. it's all about don't don't worry about the the food itself have a look at its carbon content and then just just like circling back to the beginning of the chat just like you turn your thermostat down a degree or two it's Mm -hmm. how can you turn your 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 carbon consumption through your food down a few you know grams or two yeah yeah it's about making that it's a change that's sustainable for you in the sense that you can sustain it right like um it's no point doing I mean, you can do veganuary, but if you're doing it for climate reasons and then kind of rebound and immediately think, oh God, I'm dying for a burger. And then have it like four times in a week, then you've probably kind of undone it. Um, yeah. And there's also, you know, there's a study done before, I can't remember the authors, but about the sort of, actually there's a sort of balance that if with different permutations, actually eating like a little bit of some meat, like uh, chicken and pork, lesser and beefs obviously more environmentally damaging like occasionally with the rest veggie is the sort of sort of most climate optimum diet because if everyone was like completely went completely vegan overnight then some we need to grow loads more soya and that kind of thing so um, yeah different perspectives on that but i think it's yeah it's important to remember we don't all have to be kind of suddenly vegan yeah because then we would be putting consumption rates up and demand rates mm. up on a lot of things, as you said, like on growing soy or something like that. Um, we, we sidetracked a bit there, but very, very nicely we sidetracked. Let's bring it back to the football. Um, mm. What is your opinion on the sustainability, the claimed sustainability on the recent Qatar World Cup? Do you have a view on that? Um, good question. Uh, I would say that I... Uh... Putting aside the fact that everyone had to jet there in order to have the competition, because we know that that's always going to yeah. put the carbon footprint up. But uh, in terms of actual the hosts and the hosting it of it, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I severely doubt that. I really doubt the claim that it's carbon neutral. Um, yeah. And there have been people who've researched it recently who've kind of said that they would not term uh, 
they would not say that it's accurate to describe it as carbon neutral. I mean, for example, um, a couple of days before the final was a bit of a publicity thing. They sent to to the uh, match balls uh, uh, into space in a partnership with SpaceX. Um, they're probably not including that in their carbon accounting um, because, you know, why would you include, uh, you know, carbon emissions from marketing in your carbon budget? But uh, that probably produced as much uh, greenhouse gas emission then. <laughs> How did I not know this? They sent some of the match balls into space. Yeah, they Good did. Good grief. Yeah. As much as I like space and stuff like that, that is just, there is no benefit in that whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, space exploration has benefits to humanity, technology development. So that is just, oh my God, that's just, I don't know, that's just made me so angry. And the environmental impact from <laughs> from space launches as well, like it's not like flying a plane in the sense that um, or, or driving a car. It's one of the few times you actually inject those kind of warming greenhouse gases directly into the yeah. into the upper atmosphere. So yeah. they actually sort of per ton of CO two or whatever has it has more warming effect than the same amount of CO two emitted from your car or something. Yes. Um, well, you hear it here, folks. Any claims about sustainability? The Qatar World Cup, they blew it. <laughs> hundreds of times over by sending match balls into space well then, i mean in general in football it's it's quite it's quite difficult to to know where to draw the line the line because the vast majority of carbon emissions um uh, when we're talking about um football is is fan travel yes um yeah. and then it's like well is it fair to for clubs to sort of take ownership of that and and because um I mean, they're, they're beginning to. I think they're going to. They're including that as kind of you know what we call scope three emissions um, when they're when they're doing their carbon accounting. But then it's like, well, what can clubs do? Because actually, public transport is a nationally or local government decided thing, and I'm sure clubs would love it if they had less traffic around the stadium and were able all the supporters were able to get them on public transport. Yeah. There is stuff that clubs can do. So Brighton is a good example, actually. Um, so they provide, um, I believe it's it's free bus and train travel within a certain zone to home and away fans. Um, mm. So uh, that's like a good initiative, and um, you know, providing cycle parking and and you know, I'm always of the opinion that like clubs have quite a lot of money. I'm sure if they like partnered with the council, they could put on like a couple of extra bus services on yeah. match days and things like that. Yeah, that me, anyone that, can use, not just the fans. Yeah, exactly. And for me, that comes back to the co-benefits. So to link it back to, to where I'm from, Wolverhampton, you know, Wolverhampton's a, a one-club city um, and a city centre that um, really isn't in the best of shape these days. Um, and I think without the without the football club there and without the football club doing well, um, like I don't, I'm not entirely sure why anyone would go into the city of Wolverhampton because it's you wow. can, it's so easy to get to Birmingham now. So actually, yeah. like it's so quiet most of the time, apart from on match days where it's you know every pub is rammed. So you think, in terms of co-benefits to the city, um, if everyone was able to go into the city centre, meet your friends for a drink and for some food before the game, and it's easy to, and you can walk from the city centre to, to, to Molyneux, the stadium. Um, but if basically less people drive and more people are able to do social stuff like that and spend the money in local um, pubs and bars before the game, sort of everyone wins. And, you know, I'm pretty sure most football fans wouldn't want to drive mm. to a game because... I think it's fair to say most football fans would quite like a drink at the game, or at least not yeah. to have the worry of, of driving. And I tell you what, it's it, it football 
the economy of football, you know, could really quite lend itself exceptionally well to something like the circular economy. It really, really can, you know, which is what we're trying to move towards in order to to have a more sustainable, fairer, you know, version of capitalism, of consumerism. And um, you, you gave a, a perfect example there about how it could work, you know, in a place mm-hmm. like Wolverhampton. And yeah, and it, I, I mean, I knew that football clubs, you know, some football clubs are very important to their their locations some more than others but yeah um now rethinking about it i can see how they have such a profound impact on the economy of their local areas such as the place of wolves you know where Mm. where it would be what else has it got going for it at this point in time yeah and wolverhampton's a city right so you you think that that effect is even greater in places where you know it's it's a small town and uh and the football club is is basically everything you know, everything in that, in that town revolves around it. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, Wolverhampton, maybe I'm slightly harsh as someone who doesn't live there anymore. But for me, I think it's proximity to, to Birmingham and how much sort of work Birmingham's had on it in the last couple of decades means a lot yeah. of people for shops, for eating out. Um, it's 20 minutes on the train or you can get a tram. Um, it's very easy to get into Birmingham now. So it's kind of sucked a lot of the life out of, out of uh, dear old Wolverhampton. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, satellite settlements around London who are on the fringes of the London network, I think the people living there would probably agree with you, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that kind of satellite settlement of effect. Um, quick game to play with you before we finish off, right? Cool. So um, I'll put the link in the description for everybody so they can download it. So I, I through my absolute geekiness, just like you, I've created a Excel spreadsheet um, with development indicators. Um, and the article that I wrote about this spreadsheet talked about why development indicators aren't great folks and they're very colonial mm-hmm. but that's you can read the article for that but let's just have that some fun here so we've got all the groups so from the world cup all the clubs in their groups so in group a we've got netherlands qatar ecuador senegal but you can rank the teams by a certain development indicator right, right? Okay. and then they will go through to the next round according to the ranking so mm-hmm. um we could do this two ways i can either give you a random team and then you've got to try and get that team all the way to the final by selecting the correct development indicators, oh, or I can let you, or I can let you choose a team, and then you try and score a goal by selecting development. I'll give you choice of two development indicators, and you've got to choose the right one where you've either scored or you've missed, or you've blazed the Harry Kane penalty above the bar, above <laughs> bar, or you've put it in the corner of the net. Um, okay, let's let you choose. Let's let you choose a country. Try and try and go for yeah. one, one where you might think they could win some, they could lose some. Give you a bit more of a challenge. What do you reckon? From from any any team that qualified for the World Cup. Any team that qualified for the World Cup. Um, uh, let's go for. I mean, uh, yeah, let's go for England. Why not? Okay, we'll go for England. Okay, so um, a lot of these. Different. I can choose a different one if you want. Well, let's go for England. So a lot of these statistics are based on the UK because it's quite difficult to get devolved statistics, but there are some. Yeah statistics which are devolved where the statistics are for England only okay so you've got to get England in the top two of the group right mm-hmm. so I'm going to give you a choice of three development indicators and you've got to make sure that you pick the one which puts England in the top two right okay so first one is um, and some of these could be really really straightforward but the first one is the share of seats in Parliament held by women the percentage share of seats held by women um, the percentage of urban population or the um, LGBT Equality Index? Which one of those are you going to go for to get England in the top two? 
Um, Put some football music over this, I think. LGBTQ Equality Index. Okay, so if I organise by that, and the two who go through from Group B are England versus England and Wales. So they both have 84%, or or an index of 84 out of 100. The United Mm -hmm. States finished third with 82, and Iran finished bottom of the group with six. Yeah, I I imagined that (laughs) Iran wouldn't be too great on that metric. No. Okay, so in the second round, England are facing Ecuador because Ecuador mm. finished second in their group, according to the LGBT Equality Index. Right. Okay, so ooh, what do I choose here? So we're going to go for, right, dependency ratio, which is the lowest is the better because you've got less dependents. I, yeah. I know it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but still. So dependency ratio or internet usage. Um, um, it's, it's they're, they're, they're easy-ish opposition so perhaps this is an easy choice for you so you've, we'll give you three chances you've got to win at least 2-1 of course so what are you going to go for are you going to shoot with dependency ratio or internet usage I'm going to put my foot through internet usage yeah 1-0 to England that was pretty straightforward so uh, internet usage is um, 95% in England and um 65% Ecuador right mm. so are they going to equalise or is he going to put the killer blow in now so let's see the next one is um, I'm going to look around here carbon dioxide emissions obviously the lower the better mm. carbon dioxide emissions and um, unemployment rate where the lower the better so are you going to carbon mm. dioxide emissions or unemployment rate which one are you going to put this game to bed here comes Marcus Rashford with his charity work, dribbling down the <laughs> wing. Uh, I'm going to go for... Uh, what was the second one again, sorry? So, unemployment or carbon dioxide emissions, tonnes per capita? Um, I'm going for unemployment. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So, England and Marcus Rashford just stuck it in the back of there, and England have gone through 2-0. Right. Yeah, so now, oh, quarterfinal, England-Mexico. Mm, so Mexico got through on the back of uh, of unemployment in the last. Who did they beat? Mm. They beat Denmark on unemployment rate. Wow. Ooh, wow. Okay, that's a surprise. Um, so England, Mexico. Yeah, let's make this a bit more harder for you. And folks, I hope you're playing around at home as well. That'd be good. <laughs> uh, oh, this. Oh, this one is going to be tricky for you. Right. So urban population and i'm going for highest is better because in general higher density populations tend to be more sustainable because there's less more interconnectivity mm. whereas lower density is more you know, anyway. so you we want to have the highest urban population will score you a goal so urban population or i want to make this tricky renewable energy consumption where the higher is the better so urban population or renewable energy consumption because we're short of time, this is a one. This is golden goal. Yeah. Uh, this is. Uh, this, is got, this is a little bit harder. Um, I'm going to go renewable energy, but I'm feeling like Mexico might have a bit of hydroelectric, so I might be wrong here. Okay. So, posted in. He scored. Oh, yeah. Twelve. It. So renewable total percent of final energy consumption twelve point two four percent. Uh, UK and 10.34% for Mexico. So only just picked it. Only just picked it. So you're in the semi final. Right. So in the other semi final, it's Portugal, Australia. And in England's semi final, it's Switzerland. Skin harder mm. now. 
because they yeah. in terms of human development index they're very close together in terms um, of football I think Gareth got lucky with another easy run but yeah but it's getting harder now yeah. um, right so this is going to be really tough very very comparable countries right so um, again we're going to go it's gone into extra time and this is going to be the winning goal right so I'm I think go... we lean forward when you try harder I know yeah Whoa. um <laughs> Oh, this is great. I'm definitely going to choose this one because it's a semi-final. It's got to be hard. Okay. Which team has the latest Earth overshoot day? So if you pick that one and England's got the late, the, the latest Earth overshoot day, they'll go through. But if it's if you're wrong, it'll be Switzerland to go through. So Earth overshoot day, are you going to take a shot with that? Or are you going to take a shot with... Um, yeah, let's go with share of seats in Parliament held by women again. Mm. Earth overshoot day or the share of seats in Parliament held by women. Which one does England come out on top? Um, this is tricky. Share of seats in Parliament. Oh, okay. So, oh no, Maguire has just lost hold of the ball. It's been nicked. No. Switzerland and Shakiri has just slotted it in the corner of the net, and Switzerland have just put out England in the semi final. Yeah, if you'd have gone for, um, yeah, so. It, it's 39.8% for Switzerland and 31.1% for, for oh, wow. the English Parliament. Um, whereas Earth Overshoot Day, England has an Earth Overshoot Day of six days later than Switzerland. 19th wow. of May compared to the 13th of May. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm afraid England have fallen at the semi-final. Um, they play Australia in the third place. No one cares about the third place playoffs. We're not even going to try that. No. But um, I just... just so. Portugal, Switzerland are in the final, um, and if you go straight on Human Development Index, then it would actually be Switzerland who come out on top, and Australia would be England in the third place playoff on, on Human Development <laughs> Index as well. So England finished fourth again. <laughs> wow, we just we just can't make it past the semis. No, we're destined to not make it past the semis. But there you go, folks. That is uh, the World Cup being played out via uh, fail. Failed or fallible development indicators. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, and I hope uh, that from that I've thrown my hat in the ring for for the England job when Gareth does step aside in twenty twenty four. Yeah, well, semi final. That's not too bad, you know. <laughs> not too bad at all. You know, we've got to be happy with this, folks. To be constantly quarter finalist, semi finalist, finalist is not a bad going. Gareth Southgate is the most successful England manager since Sir Alf Ramsey. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm pretty. I'm. I'm. I'm content. That's how I describe myself in England. <laughs> okay. Last thing to finish off with then is the the trademark of this podcast, which mm. is uh, we are all geographers, where we're going to be linking everybody uh, together, all the guests together, by having a 30-second bash at a single word and linking it to geography. So um, you've been ganged up on, Dan, because the last episode <laughs> of the last season, I actually had a coffee house. So I had like a bunch of people previous guests turn up and they all decided together that um, they thought it'd be so much fun and a laugh that they knew I was going to be recording this in December or January. At the time we did the coffee house, we had just had that 40 degrees Celsius containing heat wave. Mm, So they went for the word heat wave, not because it's going to be hard word for you, but because they knew you were doing it this time of year. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, true trickier them so i'm going to set my timer here dan and basically it's it, yeah you'll smash this easy so basically you've got 30 seconds to talk about the word heat wave 
in any context, but preferably geographical context. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Your 30 seconds start now. Okay. Well, with the heat wave, I'm going to link it back to um, the one that you're talking about that we did experience back in the summer. Um, heat waves as uh, a kind of climate extreme or, or a form of extreme weather likely to become um, more severe and more frequent as a result of climate change. Um, and I think it really brings it to the fore of our daily lives in the UK when we have to deal with those temperatures that our country, our infrastructure is just completely not built for. Train tracks buckle, we haven't got air conditioning and our houses get too warm. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was an easy topic, depressing one, easy one, and it brings it back to some conversation we had earlier in the in the chat as well. Um, thanks it's, for that, Dan. Uh, no, no worries. It was it was kind of I had too much to talk about. I, yes. Uh, yeah. What I, I'd maybe just like to add as well is that linking it back to the football thing, actually, uh, heat waves uh, and indeed cold snaps are not very good for football. So it's one thing that in football future we talk a lot about is the impact not just of football on climate, but of climate change on football. Uh, yes. And the fact that this is football's problem too. So particularly when you get below the Premier League and they don't have undersoil heating or, um, you know, are able to water it constantly. Non-league clubs lose weeks of the season yeah. to, to extreme weather, get flooded in certain places. And actually many oh, stadiums... I can't get out of my head the, the picture of Carlisle United's football ground mm. um, a few years ago during that flood. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they did a lot of community work, didn't they, to try and support the community to recover from exactly. that flood. And there's yeah. a club um, that we've uh, spoken to, Tadcaster Albion, I think they're called, oh, yes. um, yeah. in, I believe it's Yorkshire, um, who've been flooded, kind of get flooded several times a year at this point. And they're, you know, a small non-league club. They can't afford to keep sort of repairing everything all the time. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's a there's um, there's a stat that now I, I, might, I might get this wrong and this will be embarrassing because I, I say this stat a lot. But I think it's about um, a quarter of English football league clubs uh, so in the top four divisions um, will be at, um, will be likely to be at least partially flooded once a year um, by I think 2030 um, based on current climate predictions because a lot of them are by the are by rivers or, or the coast right and those that aren't um, will experience flood risk in other ways makes sense doesn't it because that's where th- at the time the most available flattish land was was on the yeah. floodplain yeah yeah, Carrow Road, um, they used to be up on the hill donkeys years ago, but now they're right by the right by the River Winsom. So, mm. yeah. Um, Mummy will be okay, though. We're on, we're on a hill. <laughs> so, Dan, for the next guest, then, you get to choose uh, a word for them to have a pop at for 30 seconds. Have you got something in mind? Um. I did, and now I've forgotten it. Um, let's... <laughs> okay, well, so, you know, we're recording this in uh, on the 20th of December. I'm about to travel home for Christmas, so let's go with Christmas. Let's go with Christmas. Excellent, because um, that can mean so many different things to so many different people. Mm. So I'll see what the next person comes up with. Well, um, brilliant. Thank you. So before we get going then, Dan, this is your chance to give out any shout outs and to plug your wares of any kind and where can people find you on social media and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, um, as we mentioned right at the start, my, my day job at the moment is, uh, I do outreach for the school of geography and the environment, which is the geography department at the university of Oxford. Um, so if you or anyone that you teach or, uh, or anyone that you know is interested in studying geography broadly, uh, and maybe potentially, 
the University of Oxford as well, please do get in touch. Um, so you can email me, um, which is access dot, uh, sorry, access dash outreach at ouce.ox.ac.uk. And you can find that on the uh, School of Geography website as well. It's pretty easy. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, I might get this wrong, actually, so you might have to remove this in the edit. It's at uh, Dan Hall underscore 97. I have two, so I get confused. <laughs> um, and then also I'll give a shout out to, to Football for Future as well. So if you search Football for Future or uh, Football Climate Change Organization, you'll probably be able to find it through Google. The website there, really excellent blogs from a, a, lot, of the, uh, a lot of the team. Um, yeah. And uh, on Instagram, uh, Twitter as well and linkedin too so if you just search for football for future it should be pretty easy to find brilliant yeah do check that out folks you know um it's a really good example of what i've been saying a lot and dan would say a lot all the time is that how sport can be a really really good you know thing for the community and stuff like that mm -hmm. it's not all about 22 muppets kicking around a pig's bladder so you know yeah it's about the it's about the what it means to people and the fact that people people yes. listen when footballers say stuff right they most certainly do and you just as we've already mentioned his name already you just look at the impact of people like marcus rashford you know mm. and and what they have done and it is they they i'm i'm a massive rashford fan over some of the other well-known footballers which one which i adored seeing bursting into tears in the quarterfinal oh, yeah. of this world Cup. Oh, and it, <laughs> you know but um they do have a lot of power and this is this is when i keep saying you folks are role models you have such a you have got such a, a power and a privilege that you can use for better and yeah and um that's why i i love football because i think most of them do do a decent job you know like that. yeah exactly so, that's why i love gareth southgate because he is a good chap he is, he is. He's a good job. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me uh, today, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you also for kicking off season three for us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, Follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.